Good morning. Is it good to be back in life groups this morning? We thought it was. Well, before we begin this morning, I've been asked to give our congregation an update on Awana. So I've been part of Rock Prairie long enough to remember when there was no midweek children's ministry. In fact, when Kim and I, when our girls were growing up, there was a period of time where we would take them to Trinity Wesleyan on Wednesday nights because they had a midweek children's program and we would attend their midweek Bible study. And so it's, it's still vivid in my mind how excited we were when Awana came to Rock Prairie when our girls were in about the fifth grade. And there's no doubt that Awana has played a tremendous role in the growth of this church. However, over the the past several years, we have gradually been migrating away from using Awana materials. In fact, it's been over 10 years ago that we developed a new curriculum for TNT that was all ours, and we stopped using the Awana teaching curriculum. We just continued to use the Awana handbook for scripture memorization. Um, Eventually, uh, Sparks did the same thing. They continued to use the handbook for scripture memorization, but Tony Cox developed a curriculum that they've been using. Uh, About three years ago in TNT, we stopped using the Awana handbooks because kids kept losing them, and every time they did it, it cost their mom and dad about 15 bucks to replace that book. So we developed our own system for scripture memorization, and we were in the process of maybe transitioning the Sparks onto a system like that. And so now as we are in a position where we're using very little actual Awana material, uh, we found ourselves at a crossroads. Do we continue paying Awana dues just so that we can use the name Awana, or do we move on to a new curriculum? And after looking around at alternate midweek children's curriculums, I think Liz has identified something that she wants to, to change to, to take us in a little different direction. But not much is really going to change. We're still going to have a Wednesday night program for kids that will run from 6 to 7.30. We're still going to have an opportunity for the kids to memorize scripture, to play some games, and then to have a lesson full of biblical, biblical truth. All of that is still going to happen. It's just not going to be called Awana any longer. So if you have any questions about that, don't hesitate to see Liz. And one last thing, when we leave here, no one needs to call my brother, the CEO of Awana, and let him know about this, all right? We don't need to tell him. Mom, we don't need to tell him. All right. In life, all of us face defining moments, events that change the way we see and react to the world around us. Things like meeting the person who would one day become our spouse, or the moment we said, I do. Or the moment we see a child, our child, enter the, make its grand entrance into the world. The moment we, someone we dearly love passes away. Or even the moment we hear the words, it's cancer. All of those are defining moments where everything about my experience of life after that changes. Back in June, I had one of those moments. Kim and I had been out putting together a trampoline in the backyard for our grandkids, and it was a really hot day. And after we came inside, I sat down in my recliner and realized I had a funny feeling in my chest, so I took my pulse, and it was highly erratic, which then led me to grab a stethoscope and listen. And at that point, what I heard was definitely not normal. In fact, I was almost positive I was in AFib. And 
Actually, that's not true. I was actually 100% positive that I was in AFib, but I say almost positive because there's always a bit of denial that goes along with something like that, like, this, this can't be real. This can't be happening to me. So Kim listened then, and she confirmed what I was hearing. And over the next 90 minutes, I tried a whole bunch of stuff that I knew from nursing to try and get my heart to revert back to a normal rhythm. Didn't work. Went to the emergency room, ended up being admitted to the hospital with AFib, where thankfully after about 12 hours, my heart went back into a normal rhythm and they didn't have to shock me. Last Saturday night, I actually had another episode, so I wasn't in church last Sunday morning because the same thing happened again. Now, since this all began, I've had a slew of tests, which have all come back normal. I've seen a cardiologist. No one can seem to explain why it's happening. Everything again, all the tests have been normal. But the one thing the cardiologist did tell me was that for the sake of my heart and my, just my overall health was that I needed to do a better job of managing my diet and getting more exercise. To which I replied, are you saying I'm fat and out of shape? To which he replied, yes, Jerry, that's exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) Now, that part didn't really happen. But that's what he meant, right? We all know it. That's what he meant. You all have eyes. (laughs) It's not like Dr. Harper hasn't been telling me this for the last 20 years, right? But hearing it this time had a different effect. Because now I have experienced a heart issue. And it's not much fun. So I've found myself at one of these defining moments where I have some choices to make about my future. And I'm sure in some way everyone here today can relate to that. Not because you're all fat and out of shape, although maybe, I don't know. But because some of us, all of us at some point have faced one of these defining moments, right? The reason we're talking about this today is not so that I can tell you about my AFib. It's because the topic we're going to talk about today is the single most important defining moment in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection changed everything about the world we live in. It was and is the single most important moment, the single most important event in all of history. So in just a moment, we're going to read about the resurrection from the Word of God, and then we're going to be looking at two questions. The first is, how do we know that the resurrection is not just a story? How do we know that it really happened? And the second is, what difference does it make that Jesus not only died on the cross, but also rose from the grave? So as we launch on this quest to answer these important questions, we're going to begin by reading several passages, several passages of Scripture. Sorry, getting tongue-tied this morning. We're going to stop along the way to make just a few comments, and then after we've read the whole story, we're going to come back and answer those questions. So open your Bibles with me, if you will, first to the book of John, chapter 19, beginning with verse 28. John chapter 19, beginning with verse 28. While you're finding that, let me just say that the resurrection is one event that is of such importance that all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all write about it. 
and they are writing from different perspectives. They're writing to different audiences, and so each of them include some little details that wouldn't maybe matter so much to one audience, but matter more to another one. So what's important for us to understand is that there's no disagreement between the accounts. They can be easily harmonized together. They all four focus on the evidence of the resurrection being an actual historical event. They all four look at the empty tomb as evidence of the resurrection. They all four look at testimony of angels as evidence of the resurrection. And they all look at the witness of the women who saw the risen Jesus personally, Mary Magdalene and the other women. So for us today, we're going to be looking at details from several different passages in three different Gospels. And we're going to begin, as I said, in John chapter 19. This passage actually describes the death of Jesus on the cross after being beaten, forced to carry his cross, being nailed to that cross, and then hanging there in agony for six hours. So let's begin reading with verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that Scripture would be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now then, since it was the day of preparation to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews requested of Pilate that their legs be broken and the bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But after they came to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Yet one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So let's talk for just a few little comments here. Jesus was crucified on a Friday, and Saturday was the Sabbath. Officially, the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday, actually, and lasted until sundown on Saturday. And of course, Jewish law prevented the Jews from doing any work on the Sabbath, which would have included removing the bodies of the three men hanging there on those crosses and preparing them for burial. As such, if it took Jesus and these criminals too long to die, their bodies would be left hanging on the crosses until the Sabbath ended 24 hours later. So the Jews requested of Pilate to break the legs of the men hanging on those three crosses to speed up their deaths. With their legs broken, the men would no longer be able to use their legs to hold themselves up. Their bodies would slump forward, they'd be unable to breathe, and they would suffocate to death. Their bodies could then be moved before sundown. And that's exactly what happened, at least to the first two men. But when they came to Jesus, the soldiers could see that he was already dead. They didn't break his legs, which actually fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy that the Holy One would not have his bones broken. Uh, Instead, one of the soldiers pierced the side of Jesus with his spear, and blood and water flowed out. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, has now succumbed to his injuries and has died. And with that, 
Let's move on to our next passage, this time in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, beginning with verse 57. Now when it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea came named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Now on the next day, that is the day which is after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that when the deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I am rising. Therefore give orders for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him and say to the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the tomb secure with the guard, sealing the stone. Okay, just a couple of details. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, we learn elsewhere, is actually a Pharisee who had come to believe in Jesus and he was granted permission to take the body. And he took the body to his own personal tomb. He rolled a large rock in front of the entrance. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were both there watching this whole process unfold. That's an important detail that we need to remember. Then we see the chief priests and the Pharisees go to Pilate and ask him for a Roman guard for the entrance to the tomb. Because they remember the words of Jesus that in three days he would rise again. And the last thing they want is for somebody to come steal the body and claim that Jesus has risen. So Pilate gives them permission. They, they put a Roman guard there, and they seal the tomb. Matthew doesn't tell us how, but wax or clay would have been a common thing to use in this day and time in history. And that would seal in the smell of decay and also make it so that you could tell if the stone had been moved in any way. So let's continue reading with Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the tomb. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who had been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Rejoice! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. 
Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go bring word to my brothers to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Again, pretty self-explanatory, right? We have the presence of angels. The women had waited until after Sabbath to come to the tomb. And then we have the presence of angels. And all throughout the, the Bible, anytime we see an angel, what's the first thing the angel says? Don't be afraid. I don't know what angels look like, but they must be terrifying. I imagine them so beautiful that they're terrifying, right? Then we have an empty tomb. We have the testimony of the angel that Jesus has risen, just as he said he would. And then we have an actual appearance of Jesus to the women. And as I initially, I said that all four gospel writers include some different details that would have been important to their particular audiences. And that's true, but they all do have the same important elements as well. They all have the empty tomb. They all have the testimony of the angels. And they all have the appearance of Jesus to the women. So let's keep reading, this time staying in the same chapter, but we're going to pick up at verse 11. Now while they were on their way, some of the men from the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say, his disciples came at night and stole him while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money, did as they had been instructed, and this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Again, pretty self-explanatory. It's Sunday morning. The tomb is empty. The chief priests, not wanting the resurrection story to spread, paid the guards a bribe to circulate a lie about what had happened to the body of Christ. And if we were to continue reading, we could look at Luke chapter 24 and read about the, the risen Jesus making an appearance to two men who were walking along the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And at first, Jesus prevented them from recognizing him. But after explaining to them how it was always necessary for the Christ to suffer and die, and how the Old Testament pointed to the crucifixion, their eyes were opened, and suddenly they recognized him, and he disappeared. He vanished before their eyes. Excited, they rushed to tell the other 11 disciples what had happened. But let's look at Mark chapter 16 and see what happened when they did go to tell. Mark chapter 16 beginning with verse 9. Mark 16, beginning with verse 9. Now after he, or Jesus, had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping, And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along their way to the country. This would be the two men on the way to Emmaus. They went and reported it to the others, but they didn't believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, 
because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. Let's stop here and ask God to to bless the rest of our time together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Father, we thank you that it's true, that it offers true testimony to us, and I pray that it would speak to us all this morning. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. So what we've just read is the account of the resurrection. We've taken bits and pieces from different Gospels, and really we have just scratched the surface. We could spend uh, weeks doing an entire series on just the resurrection. But as we said from the beginning, today I just want us to answer two questions. How do we know that this isn't just a story? How do we know it really happened? And what difference does it make that Jesus didn't just die, but he also rose from the grave? So let's begin with that first question. How do we know the resurrection really happened? Well, as you can imagine, over the centuries, there have been a lot of proposed explanations for an empty tomb. Many people have tried to explain it away, to to deny that anything supernatural happened that day. So I'd like for us to look at a few of those theories, because I think they're really helpful to us in strengthening our own faith. And the first one is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory says that Jesus didn't really die, but he merely swooned. Therefore, when he was placed in the tomb, he was still alive. And after several hours being in that cool, damp environment, his body just got, felt better. (laughs) He revived. This is a theory that even today is promoted by a few scholars But there are problems with this theory. John Stott, it was a a theologian who writes these words about the swoon theory. Are we to believe that after the rigors and pains of trial, mockery, flogging, and crucifixion, Jesus could survive 36 hours in a stone sepulcher with neither warmth, nor food, nor medical care, that he could then rally sufficiently to perform the superhuman feat of shifting the boulder which secured the mouth of the tomb, and this without disturbing the Roman guard. And then, weak and sickly and hungry, he could appear to the disciples in such a way as to give them the impression that he had vanquished death. Such credulity is more incredible than Thomas' unbelief. Doesn't make sense, does it? Doesn't even mention that this weakened and bloody Jesus would have had to walk seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus with those two guys and then turn around and walk back to Jerusalem the other seven miles to appear to the eleven. And there's an additional fact included in that Gospel of John passage we read earlier that I think is really important in verse 33. We put that up, yep. But after they came to Jesus, when they saw he was already dead... They did not break his legs, yet one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. This is one of the, John's the only one that includes this detail, but it's an important detail. Blood and water came out. 
blood and water coming from the wound is evidence of like massive blood clotting. Jesus' blood was sufficiently clotted that it had separated into clot and serum. And when the soldier pierced his side, both blood and clear fluid came pouring forth. That situation is not compatible with life. Jesus did not swoon. He didn't rally later inside the tomb. He died on that cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Here's another theory about the empty tomb. The women, and subsequently everyone else, just went to the wrong tomb. After all the reasoning goes, Jerusalem at this time was full of rock tombs. There were lots of them. And if they went to the wrong tomb, this would explain why initially they had seen the tomb with the stone in front of it, and when they went back, the tomb was open. They just went to the wrong tomb. But this theory as well obviously has a lot of problems. First, remember what we read in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 59. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean cloth linen, and laid it in his own tomb that he had cut from the rock, And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there. And the other Mary, too. They were sitting opposite the tomb. These women accompanied Joseph in taking Jesus' body to the tomb. They knew exactly where it was. Not to mention that even if everyone did go to the wrong tomb, Joseph was the owner of the tomb and he could have just said, that's the wrong tomb, right? But he didn't. And on top of all of that, if all of these people went to the wrong tomb, don't you think when news of Jesus' resurrection began to spread, that the Sanhedrin wouldn't have just gotten the body and produced it and said, he's he's not risen, here's his body, he's dead. But they didn't do that. And that might be the most interesting thing of all. When the Roman guards went to the priests, what did they do? They gave them, what, a large sum of money, right? And they told the soldiers, you are to say, his disciples came at night and stole him away while you were sleeping. Isn't it interesting that the chief priests never asked for an investigation? They never said, wait just a minute here. What are you saying happened? An angel came down, there was an earthquake, the stone rolled away. We need to investigate this. If they had any kind of doubt at all about a resurrection, don't you think they would have tried to get to the truth? Instead, they invented a lie, and they paid the guards a large sum of money to propagate that lie. So why does someone invent a lie? What are they trying to cover up? The truth. The truth. By not doing any sort of investigation, we have basically an admission from the Jewish leaders, the very men who wanted Jesus dead, that there had indeed been a resurrection. And it doesn't even shock them. After three years of of seeing Jesus do these incredible miracles, of seeing him give sight to the blind and cause the deaf to hear and the mute to speak and healing people's limbs and making paralyzed people walk, he had even risen the dead. They didn't even question the empty tomb. No one went to the wrong tomb. 
Jesus had risen. Let's look at one more theory about the empty tomb, and it's this. The disciples came at night and stole the body. This is the the story that the chief priest paid for, and it's the one that's had the most staying power throughout the centuries, which to me is ironic because it's possibly the most unbelievable explanation of all. And here's why. What do we know about the disciples on the evening that Jesus was betrayed? What happened in the garden when when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus? Well, at first Peter was brave, right? He whipped out a sword and whacked off a guy's ear. He was willing to fight for Jesus. But when Jesus told Peter to put his sword away and surrendered himself to the authorities... All of the disciples deserted Jesus. Mark even describes one guy that was in such a hurry to get out of there, he left his clothes behind. Why? Later that very night, Peter, who was the most courageous of the disciples, three times that night he denied ever knowing Jesus. Why? Because they were scared. Right? They all were. Their world was turned upside down. They had no frame of reference for Jesus surrendering himself. That thought had never entered their minds. And now that he had surrendered, they were confused and they were scared. And their fear only grew over the next 24 hours as Jesus was put on trial, severely tortured, nailed to a cross, and publicly crucified. They watched him suffer and die. A a gruesome and cruel death. I'm having trouble this morning. Jesus, whom these men had left everything behind to follow, was dead. And they were all left grieving. They were scared. As his closest companions, they believed they were going to be next to be hunted down and executed. Just a few days earlier, they believed that he was going, Jesus was going to deliver Israel from Roman oppression, and they would be members of his cabinet. And now suddenly they had nothing, and they were huddled together in some secret hiding place with no idea what they were going to do with their lives. How are we going to put things back together again? They're waiting for the soldiers to come drag them away. And when Mary Magdalene came and reported to them that she had seen Jesus, that he was risen They didn't believe her. And then two more guys came and they said, we saw Jesus. We walked with him for seven miles. They didn't believe him. These 11 disciples of Jesus were not men who were prepared to go overtake a a group of Roman soldiers and steal a body. They were grieving. They were confused. They were scared. And in spite of how many times he had told them he was going to rise again, they had no expectation that that's what was going to happen. They wouldn't have even known to go steal the body. They didn't steal the body of Christ. He rose again, just like he said he would. And possibly the strongest piece of evidence for the reality of the resurrection is the changed lives of these apostles after they saw the risen Christ. These men who were grieving and scared and hiding after seeing the risen Jesus went on to boldly proclaim the gospel throughout the known world at that time and dying terrible deaths for that cause. 
Both Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome under Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded, and Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't believe he was worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. Andrew is believed to have been crucified in what is now modern-day Russia. Thomas is believed to have died in modern-day India, pierced with the spears of four different soldiers. Philip is said to have had a powerful ministry in Carthage in North Africa, where he converted the wife of a Roman proconsul, and in retaliation, that Roman official had Philip arrested and beheaded. The Jewish historian, historian Joseph, Josephus reported that James was stoned and then clubbed to death. The only apostle believed to have died of old age is John, and he died in exile on the island of Patmos alone. These men were all persecuted and killed because they refused to stop proclaiming the risen Jesus. Paul Little, in his book, Know What You Believe, writes this about the apostles. Men will die for what they believe to be true, though it may actually be false. They do not, however, die for what they know is a lie. If the disciples had been the ones who had stolen Jesus' body, they would have known that their story of Jesus' resurrection was a lie. But they constantly referred to the resurrection, seeing their risen Savior as the defining moments of their lives. It transformed them from men who were depressed, fearful, and in hiding to men who were bold evangelists, willing to go to their deaths as martyrs. All of the evidence points to the same conclusion. We can be completely confident that the tomb of Jesus was empty that morning 2,000 years ago because he had risen just as he said he would. Those are not the only theories about the empty tomb. There are others. We don't have time to get into any more of them this morning, but they don't make, the other ones don't make any more sense than the ones we've just read. But at this point, you may be wondering, why is this so important? What difference does it make that Jesus not only died on the cross, but also rose from the grave? Why has there been so much effort on the part of so many people through the centuries to explain away the empty tomb of Jesus? And the reason is pretty simple. We have an enemy who God describes as prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that enemy fully understands the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. He understands that because the resurrection is true, the Old Testament prophecies that point to it are also true. And the testimony of the witnesses in the New Testament are true. And the words of Jesus are true. And the gospel is true, and salvation is real, and God is real. The whole of the Christian gospel stands on the truth of the resurrection. If it is true, everything else is true. And the last thing our enemy wants is for you to connect all of those dots. Our enemy does not want any of us to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so his goal is to discredit the resurrection. And you see, again, the resurrection of Jesus is the defining moment of all of history. 
It is the main event in God's redemptive plan. It is the absolute bedrock foundation of the gospel. In fact, Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that a person can't even be saved without believing in the resurrection. It's not enough to believe that Jesus died for our sin. We must believe that he rose again. And here's why this is so important for us to grasp. And I want to be really clear about this. It has always been God's promise that because Jesus conquered death and has risen in a glorified body of flesh, because that is true, those who by faith believe in Jesus will also experience a resurrection into eternal life. It's always been God's promise that not only would the spirits of believers live forever in his presence, but also that they would receive resurrected bodies fit for eternity. And this has been the hope of God's people all throughout history. We see this in the Psalms. Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm that describes the death of the king. It, it describes Jesus, but it, you know, remember the psalms have two meanings. So it describes the death of the king. And then Psalm 23 says this, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 23 is a psalm of resurrection. We see it in the 19th chapter of Job. Job says, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Job understood that there would be a resurrection. We see it in the life of Abraham when he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son Isaac. Why was he willing to do that? Because he believed that God could raise his son from the grave. The hope of resurrection has always been at the heart of believers' faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul has penned a brilliant explanation of this concept. Because the people in Corinth, in the church at Corinth, they believed that Jesus had risen from the grave, but they doubted that humans were going to rise from the grave in resurrected bodies. So Paul writes, or the, the author of Hebrews writes these words, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God. That he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Do you see it? Jesus did not come to die only that we might have forgiveness of sins. As important as that is, it wasn't his ultimate purpose. His ultimate purpose was even bigger. Ultimately, the reason Jesus came is so that he might conquer death for us. 
And the only way he could conquer death for us was to conquer sin for us. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. The wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if the wages are paid, which they are, then there is no more death to fear. Jesus paid the wages of sin for us in full. He took the full wrath of God for our sin upon himself. And because he did, we no longer have to fear death. Death is simply a door that opens up. And we who believe in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are ushered into his presence for all of eternity. Where ultimately we will receive glorified, resurrected bodies. Because Christ has conquered sin and death and been raised, we who believe will be raised with him. That is the ultimate purpose of Jesus coming. A lot hinges on what we believe about the resurrection, the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the defining event in all of history. If you needed it this morning... I hope our time together has given you a new sense of confidence in what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf and a new sense of urgency to proclaim his world to those around us. As we close today, if there's never been a time when you have confessed with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there is no time like the present. I'll be hanging around up here after church, and I would love to talk with you and tell you how you can come into a personal relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is true. We thank you so much for your son who willingly laid down his life as a ransom for many and then three days later took it back again. Lord, there is no doubt in my mind, and I hope we've left no doubt for anyone this morning, that that tomb was empty that day because Jesus rose from the grave. Pray that this would speak to the hearts of everyone here and that there would not be a soul that leaves here today uh, not believing that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.